This week, what is hermeneutics? How are we to understand hermeneutics? And what would a political hermeneutics look like? I'm Kieran O'Meara, and this is the Polit Podcast. Я верю в будущее. Это замечательно, потому что оно стоит на том, что было достигнуто. I believe in the future. It is wonderful because it stands on what has been achieved. Sergei Korolev. The Soviet rocket engineer Sergei Korolev once said, "I believe in the future. It is wonderful because it stands on what has been achieved." It's all too familiar to be told that the fact of the matter is, followed swiftly by the dullest of opinion. Too often are opinion and fact deemed interchangeable. Although such a conflation may appear harmless on the surface, it erodes our grasp of existence, letting it slip away into an abyss. Acting and judging are the twin pillars of politics itself. To judge the world and act upon it is to be political. However, we can only act and judge if we know the world that we're judging and acting within. To know the world in order to change it, we must interpret it coherently from the outset. This is the link between epistemology, how we know what we know, interpretation, and politics, i.e. how we know what we know so we can act. The field of philosophical discussion concerning interpretation is widely referred to as hermeneutics. The foundational claim of hermeneutics is that the world is always within a process of becoming interpretable and being interpreted. There is no single objective truth, only intersubjective interpretation, to adapt a phrase once uttered by Nietzsche. Truth is but an interpretation made concrete. In this manner, hermeneutics claims that as there is no authentic objective truth to the world, an interpretation in and of itself, I must add, we must undergo the process of separating good interpretations from bad interpretations, an Augustinian procedure, perhaps, of dividing wheat from chaff. Today, what does it mean to interpret politically? How can such an interpretation be achieved? And what would be meant broadly by the notion of a political hermeneutics? And indeed, what even is hermeneutics? Let us say I ask the question, what is a chair? One can retort in a number of ways, but with it's an object for sitting on, ranking as the most common answer. At least I'd be willing to bet this. <laughs> the essentialist thinkers of the past would have Socratically responded with, ah, but this rock can be an object for sitting on, and yet we know it is a rock and not a chair. So I'll repeat, what is a chair? And so the dialogue would have continued and gone on and on. Hermeneutics, however, wishes to engage with the lack of truth that disturbs our world and rigorously forms good interpretations of the objects and phenomena within it. The difficulty is, of course, separating good interpretation from bad when all interpretations undergo sublimation to a certain supposed level of truth, as 
in many cases, opinion. This is the function of hermeneutics, to examine the theory and art of interpretation itself. The origins of hermeneutics are etymologically connected to the Greek god Hermes, who medieval, biblical and early modern scholars would have us believe was solely known for being the messenger of the gods. Essentially, if Hermes delivered the messages of the gods, then hermeneutics is the art of reading them. This correlates to the history of hermeneutics itself, which began its life concerned with ascertaining the correct interpretation of God's word through a process of biblical exegesis. Exegesis being taking from a text, eisegesis being supplanting into a text. This, however, ignores a whole strain of Greek theological mythology. Hermes is not just a messenger, but also a trickster a mischievous courier. We must always remember that we are not gods. We must prove ourselves worthy enough to read divine messages to gain enlightenment to understand our world. We must solve the trickery behind our instinct and interpretive capacity in order to distinguish wheat from chaff. If those interpretations taken from the messages of the gods at face value are now common fact, crystallised as truth, then Hermes' titter can be heard on the breath of the wind, revealing his trickery. The job of hermeneutics is to unravel the mischief of Hermes and achieve a good understanding of the world in which we exist, on our own terms. Although hermeneutics has its divisions and subschools, as do all fields of philosophical inquiry, in this short discussion, I'd like to briefly sketch out the basis of an explicitly political hermeneutics over the course of two episodes. This sketch must begin with the predicate that politics is itself not limited to any distinct incarnation or mode. In our epoch, the political section of any media outlet will typically discuss the events of the moment in the institutions of the state or the events which will be addressed at some point by these institutions. This is to crystallise and limit the nature and phenomenon of politics as the political. Sadly, broad interpretation of politics as concerning government policy has, in my opinion, had a detrimental effect on politics proper. So what's politics proper? <laughs> Politics proper is not exclusively the politics of the state, nor the politics of the National Assembly, nor parties, nor leaders, nor ministers, nor councillors. Politics proper is the politics of the civic association, whatever that association may be. To be political is to engage in the discourse surrounding how the civic association is to act as a single unit. It is to engage in the organisation that arises out of acting and speaking together. And its true political space, the political, lies between people living together for this purpose, no matter where they happen to be, to quote Arendt. When people utter... I don't like politics, or I'm not political. Although I interpret this to be, I care little for policy discourse, what they are suggesting is that they surrender their discursive stake in judging the actions and behaviour of the civic association they are the citizen of, 
or they are a citizen of, making up part of the citizen body. This is, by its very character, anti-political in a certain non-humanistic frame. So let's go a bit back. <laughs> in his politics, Aristotle argued that man is a political animal by nature. What differentiates us from other beings is that we are conscious of the decisions we make together, the world we create in the space between one another, in the space between ourselves. It is part of being human to be political, therefore. Politics is part of our existential condition, as we always exist in a world amongst others, and this is the basis of the civil association. The only way that one can become truly non-political is by secluding oneself, by expelling oneself from the citizen body, by expelling oneself from association with others, by becoming a lone individual, a hermit in a cave, never to mix with others again. And at that point, one renounces oneself as zoom politikon and becomes zoe, a process of lupinization where one becomes animalian. If that is something you're interested in, I would definitely read Giorgio Agamben's Homo Sessa, where he discusses this at length. Interestingly, in political science, a common talking point is political apathy. In our increasingly positivist-dominated epoch, such apathy is of course measured by analysing data, collating voting turnout, party membership, electoral registration, and so on. Naturally, this narrowly circumvents politics proper, deeming our societies to be unpolitical simply as they are lacking interest in the discourse of policy and governance. Even in an era of declining political participation, politics proper, of course, still occurs, and en masse. Politics mostly takes place outside of institutions, in fact. It takes place in coffee houses when intellectual sparring partners argue about the direction of social life. It takes place on the airwaves when topical programs and certain podcasters <laughs> hear from and discuss with listeners. It takes place when any number of people gather and engage in a discourse about how their civic associations act, and how they are to act together within those associations. No matter the location, this becomes the site of politics, by judging our collective action and behaviour in some way. You and I are in conversation right now, in fact. As you listen to this, we have become interlocutors, conversation partners, through the airwaves, by clicking on that little play button, you and I have fallen into a sight of politics. No more or less political than that of the grandest parliament, congress, supreme court, senate, committee or assembly. When the meaning of politics proper is forgotten, and we neglect that politics is to engage in the discourse about the world we create, the political site and the space between us and the space between us <laughs> begins to rot, and the world we create becomes disposable. In order to keep the world between us from becoming disposable, an immensely complex and necessary task, I might add, we must nurture a love for the world we create. Arendt used to refer to this as Amal Mundi. And this means that we must throw ourselves into the practice of politics. Another thinker that used to discuss this 
in relation to Arendt was Elizabeth Young Brawl. We must re-engage in the discourse around how our civic associations act and the kind of world we create when we act in concert, when we act together. To engage in this discourse is therefore to begin with how we understand the world. To engage with this discourse is to begin with interpretation. One of the greatest lacunas in the discussion of hermeneutics is its connection to politics. Like there are lots of texts which discuss political hermeneutics, but they tend not to be of a certain political nature, perhaps. They tend to discuss uh, a hermeneutics of certain books, for example, a hermeneutics of uh, Aristotle's politics, for example. As hermeneutics holds its origin in textual exegesis, drawing interpretation from texts, texts, we could argue that a hermeneutics connected to the political sphere is but the interpretation of political texts. What would a political text consist of? As the political concerns judging the actions of a civic association, a contribution to such a discourse would perhaps constitute a political text. With this in mind, some of the greatest works of political thinking could be considered as political texts. From obvious works such as Das Kapital, by Karl Marx, A Theory of Justice, by John Rawls, or The Prince, by Machiavelli, to more subtle illustrations like George Orwell's 1984, H.G. Wells' The War of the Worlds, Anne Rand's Atlas Shrugged, or Collins's The Hunger Games. No matter what mode the political text may take, be it in the academic, commercial, or novelised form, they are united in that they discuss and judge the actions of the civic association broadly, i.e. how we act together and what kind of world we create. To focus on interpreting political texts alone is, of course, an act of political exegesis. Nonetheless, does this make it a mode of political hermeneutics? The simple answer is no. Although to interpret the discourses surrounding politics is itself a political act, by engaging how we broadly understand our collective action, this is still not political hermeneutics as I understand it. To interpret the action of the civic association is political hermeneutics. Hans Georg Adamer, one of the greatest proponents of hermeneutics, contended that at the heart of philosophical hermeneutics rests what Aristotle referred to as phronesis. This is the practical wisdom that stems from attaining an understanding of the world, gaining insight into our own concrete situations. The task of political hermeneutics is to etch out a strictly political phrenesis, an understanding of the actions and directions of the civic association we ourselves are members of. Naturally, it comes at no surprise that such interpretive action takes place on a rolling basis. Many of the texts, discussions and debates we take part in are of a politically hermeneutic mode. In political theory, for example, traditions of thought already begin with divergent interpretations of the world and our place within that schema. 
If we take a political object or phenomena, different traditions and sub-traditions will interpret the same object from within their respective horizons, leading to varied interpretations. The state is an obvious example of such a concept with divergent interpretation. Liberals contend that the state is a neutral umpire that regulates and protects protects citizens' lives, at least to some extent. Conservatives are unified in their theological interpretation of sovereignty, with the state as the seat of authority, morality, and order so to protect a fallen humanity from itself. Marxists grasp the state as a bourgeois mechanism for maintaining the affairs and reproduction of the capitalist mode of production, recasting the ripe conditions to exploit the proletariat. Feminism, for our final illustration, interprets the state as being always in some way connected to the notion of patriarchy, a male-dominated and oriented socio-political system in which women are limited to some degree and so interpretations go on as horizons differ. As with all traditions of thought, subdivisions differ to the extent of their common interpretive assessment. I'm going to use the conceptual notion of patriarchy that was just discussed in relation to a feminist interpretation of the state. The extent of the presence of patriarchy is disputed within feminism itself. Liberal feminists may argue that it is present on the level of formal politics as related to women's participation in the public sphere, or legal rights in the private sphere. Other factions may, and indeed do, disagree. Some contend that patriarchy manifests itself at the deepest levels of behaviour and is omnipresent. Others that patriarchy is attached to race, others that it is connected to post-colonial queer theory, linguistics, and so on. The point I'm trying to make here is that no matter what the object of interpretation may be, traditions will diverge, and so will the sub-traditions that rest within them. Horizons of interpretation upon horizons of interpretation. A political text wills itself to be interpreted, as all texts will themselves to undergo interpretation. It's from the basis of our experience in the world that we flood text with meaning, and as such, our experience colours the manner in which we interpret a text. At the end of the day, we are meaning-giving animals. Let's take a classic work, like Plato's Republic. The reason why Plato's masterpiece of political thinking is a classic is because our experience of the world, of our politics, lends itself to something within Plato's dialogue, be this the allegory of the cave, the question of justice, philosopher kings, or otherwise. Even though we can situate Plato's work within its context, the initial step of any worthy hermeneutic process, There is something about our own experience in our context that finds meaning in the pages of a text written thousands of years in the past. In this sense, texts, whether political or otherwise, are living. We breathe new life into them through the meaning we give, meaning connected to the experiences of our context, of our own horizon. In doing so, It is the basis of hermeneutics to not only interpret, but to breathe new life into the object of interpretation, to drag what may have been lost, forgotten, 
unused or unseen from the past into the present, bestowing it with meaning for ourselves today. This is something that Gadamer once referred to as the fusion of horizons, and understanding is always the fusion of horizons. For example, to illustrate this point, one's mind is drawn immediately, in my case, <laughs> to Karl Popper's The Open Society and Its Enemies, in which he locates the seeds of totalitarianism in the works of thinkers such as Hegel, Marx, Rousseau, and to continue the example given above, <laughs> Plato. Of course, Plato, Hegel, Marx and Rousseau can never really be critiqued as being totalitarian, because such an experience exists outside of their context. To do so would just simply be an act of the purest anachronism. Thus, understanding these thinkers in this way is a fusion of horizons. Nonetheless, by interpreting texts of the past with our own experiences in mind, we breathe life into these old texts anew by drawing new relevance from them in our own world. A more obvious example of this is in Heidegger's magnum opus Being and Time. Stay with me. <laughs> Here he interprets the forgotten concept of being, with a capital B, as design, sitting across philosophical texts undetected, dredging this to the surface to engage within our own academic, social and political context. These are but two illustrations of how texts consistently will themselves to be found interpretable in that we find meaning in their, in their pages outside of their own context. Those texts in which we simply find nothing are sealed to their context, and as such are almost lifeless in our own. At least, until they are perhaps given CPR by an interpreter in the future that finds meaning within their passages. Texts can be given meaning because of language. It is a basic predicate of hermeneutic phenomenology to grasp the world in terms of language. This is something that Gadama talks about in his essay on man and language. Language shrouds all things in our world. It's how we mediate our existence. All things are made up of language. Every object you can think of, every idea you've ever had, everything you have ever sensed, all of it, dragged into being and interpretable because of language. Look in front of you. What do you see? A computer, a phone, a screen, a page, a coffee cup, coffee. <laughs> These objects you can give meaning to because of the object's relationship to the language that we use and create for them. Something that has no language attached to its pure existence is not understandable. It cannot or is yet to be mediated. Once we have strapped language to the object, it becomes interpretable. In order to bring objects, in order to bring phenomenon, in order to bring things into being, they require language for us to mediate them. For example, how often do you type in a new piece of terminology into a document on your computer, a term you know to be relating to something in the world itself, and yet to have a piece of outdated software anchor its written form in blood red, <laughs> telling you, no, that's not a word, when you have to tell the computer, yes, that is a word. This is the point. If the software does not know the language, how can it know it's authentic? 
It can't. As software is designed by humans, if those coders who design the software exist before a piece of language has dragged an object or phenomena into existence, it simply doesn't exist in the software. For instance, a few days ago I was writing and all of a sudden <laughs> um, the, the phrase trending apparently was rather complicated. <laughs> I don't know why it was rather complicated, but it was. Or every time I seem to discuss with friends over messengers of different kinds, um, there will always be certain words that it finds just too difficult to do. And that's because it's outside of its own context. For the software, this particular phrase, this particular word, phenomena, is yet to exist. Language is thus the world itself. And language is past. It evolves. This is the central, or this is a central notion of hermeneutic phenomenology. All language exists within a context... And as such, interpretation is connected to the, historic to the historicity of language. All language is created within a historical horizon. Every single word, every single term I have used so far in this piece has been used before I was thrown into the nexus of linguistics and language we know as the world. I was born in 1994, <laughs> therefore... Every single term I have used so far today has been in existence since before I was. The terms we use manifest a world not of our own, but of our ancestors. The greatest contribution they gifted to us through language is the world itself. In this way, we always speak from a tradition of what Gadama refers to as a linguistic prejudice where terms denote certain experiences, and this is inescapable. When a writer enunciates, they speak from within a contextually bound horizon. In the next episode, we'll discuss this a little bit further as to how this connects with a mode of hermeneutics that is purely political. So I'm Kieran O'Meara, and you've been listening to the 26th episode of the Polit Podcast, the podcast for political posits. This has been part one of On Political Hermeneutics, focusing on hermeneutics itself and the political. Thank you ever so much for listening, and if you haven't already done so, please, please, please like, share, subscribe, and follow. Just click on that little follow, subscribe, like, share button. <laughs> it would mean the absolute world to me. And also, if you haven't done so, please go to the website. On the website, you'll be able to find the article that this episode, or these two episodes, are taken from, entitled, Standing on All That Is Yet in the Past. Some Thoughts on a Political Hermeneutics. Also, there you'll be able to find loads of references for everything we discuss, plus loads and loads of content that doesn't become a podcast episode, and they're normally quite short essays or quite short think pieces. So next week we're going to be looking at part two, discussing a little bit more as to what a political hermeneutics would actually look like. But as I say, if you haven't done so, go to the website. And remember, when you're in the mood for a think, www thinkpolit.com Thank you.